Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ruler 111 is out now, the youth issue. Appropriate timing, given that in the men's peloton we have riders barely out of their teens winning grand tours. A lot of young riders are still going the traditional route, serving an apprenticeship on the unforgiving roads of Flanders. Joe Laverick was one of them. He's written about it for the youth issue, and we'll hear from him later. The women's peloton is also getting younger. Elisa Balsamo was only 23 when she became road world champion, and more and more younger riders are seeing a viable career path in the sport. But one issue that remains unresolved is the lack of a proper under-23 women's pro scene. Ruler's Rachel Jarry has written an article about this in issue 111. Rachel, the problem, I guess, is that it's just too big a jump between top-level junior racing and effectively the world tour. Exactly. I mean, with there being no under-23 category for women, it means we kind of lose talent before it's even really had a chance to develop. So the pathway for like a female cyclist to become a professional really isn't set out properly. On the men's side, they have a lot of under-23 development squads and they have prestigious races like the Tour de l'Avenir, Baby Giro, and there's literally nothing like that for women. And I think it's an issue that probably hasn't been spoken about enough. And you can't help but think if it was kind of the same on the men's side, we would heard a lot more noise about it but um unfortunately yeah the concerns just haven't really been heard enough about it and the lack of a development structure does have implications for the future of women's cycling you know if you don't grow the base of talent at the bottom we're never going to have a bigger depth of talent at the top so it is a big problem and the UCI do a lot for women's cycling I mean they've introduced the minimum wage equal prize money but this really does only help the riders at the top and I think there is a lot more work to be done at the base of the sport as well which is this is like a big issue and it does come from uh, the top effectively doesn't it because the UCI currently doesn't have a world title race for under 23 women like it does for men. Yeah, I mean, at the Wollongong World Championships, they're saying that they're going to award a women's under 23 jersey, but that will be within the elite women's race, which just isn't going to work. I mean, I think it's going to be unfair for both parties. So it will be two races within one, you know, breakaways that normally might be let go up the road. They'll be chased down because they might have an under 23 rider in them. Riders going to be calculating who is under 23 and who isn't. And it's also going to impact selection criteria because if you're a really good under 23 rider who comes from the Netherlands or Italy, you know, really big cycling nations, the chances of you getting picks among the elites is going to be really difficult. So 
I don't think that's a solution. And it seems like the overwhelming majority of the peloton don't think that's a solution either. And um, it just begs the question, like, why, why are we waiting? I mean, we have a European under 23 championships and there's way more women in the world than in Europe. So the argument that there isn't enough riders doesn't really make sense either. Presumably that would be the argument of the UCI, wouldn't it? That there's not enough uh, women under 23 of a suitable um, quality to make a viable world's under 23 field. Yeah, I, I guess that's what they'd say. But I mean, it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? If we never give them the opportunity, then we're never going to have people aiming for that result. And it would be a great opportunity for young riders to showcase themselves to big teams in the World Tour. Um, and it's something that the men have that women don't, which is a real shame. For the article, you talked to the first UCI women's under-23 team, um, NXTG. And that's run by Cervais uh, Knaven and uh, Natasha Knaven. Uh, what's the story behind them? So they decided to create that team when their own daughters were coming out of junior category and moving up to the elites. And they'd seen firsthand so many of the struggles that young riders have making that jump. I mean, they have one winter to prepare from, you know, for 160k races. And in the juniors, I think they race like 70 kilometres. I mean, to make that jump in sort of six months is just absolutely huge. So with Team Next Gen, they tried to create a good environment for riders to develop. So they do smaller races, try not to put too much pressure on getting results and focus on the fact it's a, it's like a learning experience and offers them, you know, time to develop at a steady rate with realistic expectations. You know, one of the things that Natasha Narvin said was, it coming 60th place when you're riding with someone like Annemiek van Vleusen and you're 18 years old, that's an achievement as well and that needs to be recognised and that's something that they try and do. They also encourage riders to keep studying alongside their training and keep a good balance and support them as much as they can with nutrition, with you know mental training as well as physical and it's a really good setup. But unfortunately, it's the only one that there is at the moment, which is is a problem. And the ambition is to actually develop it. So they do actually become um, you know, a, a funnel, if you like, in, into the world tour and actually also have a junior team as well. So you can progress through the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, they want to create like a I think they are going to next year actually create a three tiered structure. So they have a junior team, an under 23 team and a women's world team, which it surprisingly the the way they've found the budget to do this is through Patrick Lefebvre, who is obviously the boss of uh, Quickstep Alpha Vinyl. And I think a lot of people were shocked by his decision to get involved because he made some comments last year, said something like he's not a welfare centre when he yeah, was He's not asked. been a big supporter of women's cycling in the past, <laughs> no. has he? No, he hasn't. Um, and I, I asked Natasha Narvin about that uh, when I was writing the article and she said his comments were taken out of context and he is a big supporter of the project. And what he wants to do is make it sustainable so he doesn't want to just put money into the top riders who are already the best riders but instead kind of build a project from the ground up so you know I, I really hope it works out because it is needed. Any other reasons for optimism do you think as the scene develops? Yeah I think just looking at the results in the world tour right now um, because there's quite a few more races the calendar is growing it, it means that not all of the top riders are at every single race and it's giving some of the smaller riders a chance to show themselves for example there's a, a rider who rides for next gen Ali Wollaston and she won a UCI 1.1 race um, at the weekend and you know that gave her the the stage to show what she could do so the fact that the calendar is growing and these smaller teams are getting more chances I mean that is giving them the opportunity to show what they can do but um, there's definitely still still work to be done and I think 
one of the problems is a, a real lack of incentive for teams to have under 23 structures. I mean, Natasha Narvin was saying that they had two riders move up to the World Tour last year, but they, you know, there's no transfer fee, there's nothing like that. And the, the, you get very little back from all the work you do to develop these riders. They just go into the World Tour and, and that's it. So it, it kind of needs a big structural rethink. Uh, we're going to hear from Joe Laverick in a second about his challenges uh, when he was riding in Belgium. Uh, you yourself were a full-time bike rider in Belgium a little while ago. What, how was the experience for you? It was a great experience. It was really fun. It was really hard. Um, I think, you know, I, I was there on my own and uh, it's a different language, a completely different culture. I remember like going to races and we, we were just completely clueless. We didn't even know how many laps it was. We would get there and be driving the wrong way down a one-way street, have all these Belgians shouting at us. I mean, it's such a baptism of fire, but it's definitely where you want to go if you want to learn how to race. Like you get fields of like well over 100 women in local commesses, whereas in the UK, it would probably be hard to get kind of over 30 in a race like that. So in terms of preparation for the pro ranks, like there's no better place to develop but um yeah you've got to be tough you've got to be tough especially for the weather there as well <laughs> rachel thanks for that um if you want to read rachel's article shock to the system it's in ruler 111 go to ruler.cc to subscribe we're going to take a short break on the other side ruler editor ed pickering will be talking with joe laverick why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinaway, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. Ruler 111 is a celebration of youth. The initial impetus for the magazine, under the previous editors Ian Cleverley and Annie McGraw, was the extraordinary success of riders like Tadej Pogacar and Remco Evenepoel, they're prodigies who are capable of winning the world's biggest races in their early 20s and even their late teens. Joe Laverick, a rider for the Hagen's Berman Action Squad, has written a feature for Ruler 111 about the Belgian school of hard knocks and his experiences of racing there. Laverick managed to juggle A-levels with regular trips from his home in Grimsby all the way to Belgium. And as he points out, on Sunday mornings he'd be racing around Flanders fields on Monday mornings, he'd be back in Grimsby studying war poetry from Flanders Fields. And he joins me now. So, Joe, you start your piece by listing your first three results in Belgian races. And they go as follows. DNF, DNF first. So it's fair to say it sounds like you had a fairly up and down experience right from the very start of racing is that is that true yeah belgium is very much a roller coaster of emotions doesn't matter what level you're at there's always the highs and always the lows yeah i remember getting off after my second dnf and the ds just saying to me don't worry there's always next time um and next time you never know if you can win and then i did and it's just one of those things as i later on like i go and crash again and it's just one of those things you never know what's around the next corner in Belgium, metaphorically or literally, um, with road furniture. So, yeah, it's one of those things. Did those two DNFs 
help you with the third race? Did you did you learn from those two races in order that you could, you know, work work out what went wrong and then, you know, put that right in the in the third race? The thing with Belgium is it's not always um, necessarily your fault, kind of thing. So I remember the first the first DNF I double punctured on a cobbled sector, and then you're just like, thank you very much, day over. And then the second DNF, it was, I think that it was minus 10 degrees feels like, and I was out of position going into a cobbled sector. And then when it's minus 10 and you're out of position and the race goes away from you, um, yeah, you're not really left with an option. But I suppose you kind of learn the little things like being in position, knowing when to fight for a wheel, knowing when not to fight for a wheel. Um, And the other beauty of Belgium is every time you do race there, you learn something new. I don't know how many race days I've done there now. But there's always something, whether it's which side of the road to be on in this town, which road furniture avoid, what to bunny hop. Yeah, there's always something. After the terrifying lows and dizzying highs of your first three races, did things settle down at all after that? Or was it still you know, always an extreme experience? I think it was always an extreme experience. I won a few more times that year in Belgium, but I also spent a lot of my time on the floor in Belgium. And also that year being away from, it wasn't away from home necessarily, but just the weekends away and the team were great. They all spoke English. I don't speak a word of Flemish. Um, But when you're around the dinner table, everyone's speaking Flemish and you're just there. Like it can feel, it's hard almost being in that environment as a, I don't know, 16, 17, away from home, even if it's just for a week or a weekend, Um, which feels strange to say now. But it was things like that, which were also difficult, not just the racing side, it's the off-the-bike side as well. And what, what did you learn from, from that experience? I think you grow up really fast, um, like really, really fast. So when a normal weekend for, I don't know, somebody in year 11 or 12 in the UK, which is what, 16, 17, I think, you kind of finish school, go to party, play football. Um, it's like actually when I first started racing in Belgium, I was also playing football. Uh, for the school team and for a local team as well, which is another juggle. But when all of a sudden you've got to like, go across the channel, go race, set everything up, you just grow up faster and things like that become your norm, which is funny to say that my norm was going across to Belgium to race um, at a weekend. But when it's your life, you just, that's what it is kind of thing. Um, was it always the ambition to go to Belgium to to race and to learn racing you could you could have chosen maybe a more clement climate you know, such as Italy or, or or France what was it about Belgium that, that that attracted you as a junior I think it's the best place to go well a few reasons it's it's the easiest as a Brit because obviously it's it's just well for me in Grimsby it's about an eight hour drive to Flanders but the further south you go obviously the shorter it gets and just the amount of racing you can do in Belgium on one weekend um, just makes it a much more obvious place to go. Everything's concentrated in one area. Most races are in Flanders, which limits travel. When I turned to U23, I ended up going to France, which suited my characteristics more as a rider. But as a as a junior, Belgium is a great place to go. And it was kind of an accident, actually. My junior team in the UK folded. And I remember coming back from a trip one time, and I was told we were folding. And I was told to call this guy, who's a Dutch director, to find me a team. And within 20 minutes, he got back to me and was like, do you want to sign for these guys? They're based in Flanders. I was like, why not? Just why not? Didn't consult the parents or anything. I was just like, yeah, okay, we'll figure this out as we go. What would you say the educational benefits have been as far as the racing goes? 
uh, as far as the racings or actual educational <laughs> both you know you have to learn how to race your bike don't you and you said that that belgium's the you know the the best place to learn so what what are you learning when you're out there the thing is everything can go wrong in belgium very quickly because you can come out of a town like you come out of one of the little towns in 50th wheel and all of a sudden you're in the fifth echelon or you can come out of the town in the first wheel and it's a headwind and you've got to kind of you learn to read the race more so in juniors as well when like i was stronger like now if i go race in belgium against the world tour guys i'm kind of at the victim of them but as a junior i could get away with doing a little bit more what i wanted um but you lead you learn to read the direction of the road so if you're turning right and there's going to be a crosswind you know you need to be at the front you learn kind of to judge where to be in the bunch at the right time and there's there's lots of little things which I probably don't even realise I'm doing, like risk versus reward. And I don't know if yourself or anyone listening to this has ever ridden in Belgium, there's the gap of doom in the middle between the concrete slabs. Um, and you spend half of your race just bunny hopping that. So I think you spend more time actually in the air and bunny hopping in Belgium than any other country in the world. It's impressive bunny hop per kilometre ratio in Belgium. And you're still an under 23, but these, these days you are racing, you know, against world tour teams in big one one day belgian um events um is it still the same as when you were race is it the same style of racing as when you were a junior or is it different now you've gone up a level it's similar but it's so in belgium as a pro there's the inevitable fight for the breakaway then it calms down and then we go racing again in the juniors you just skip the first part and just go racing it's kind of once the break has gone and everyone started riding, then you start racing in the pros. It's just like juniors because teams try to control it as and when they can. But realistically, you see this in the classics a lot. How hard is it to control a Belgian classic? I mean, quick step have been very good at it over the years. But even then, it's just like a strength in numbers thing. You don't see somebody riding the front all the time like the mountain trains. So I think that's the beauty of Belgian racing as a almost as a fan more than a rider. Just the unpredictability, the craziness of it. It's, it is even pro racing when it goes racing in Belgium is like junior racing. It's chaotic, it's crazy, and it's unpredictable, which is why it's so good. Take us through some of the more challenging moments you've had in, in Belgian races. Um, well, last year comes to mind. Um, I'd just come back. Well, I broke my knee at the start of the year. I was due to come back, then got COVID. So I took some more time off. My first race back after COVID, um, one of my first races back was a Belgian block. And it was in the period just before Worlds. So all of the best guys were lining up on the start list, um, kind of prepping for Worlds to recon the Worlds courses because we were doing the overrider circuit. And I just remember looking at the start line. I was like, wow, these guys make more more in a day than I make in many, many years. Um, and you you think, it's like, oh, there's Gilbert, there's Caleb Ewan, like the Palmares, which you kind of dream of. And then you go racing and I got dropped after... Not not many kilometres. It was quite embarrassing, actually. And it's one of the hardest parts is the roll back. Once you've been dispatched from the peloton, you're in the gruppetto and you're told to to basically leave the race. And it's the roll back to where the campers and the buses are parked. And it's this weird... There's usually a little group of you. And there's this weird, like... We've all failed. Like, ultimately, there's no two ways about it. And some people are trying to get over that failure with happiness and like joking. Some people are just in like their own thoughts. And it's that period between 
leaving the race as it is, and then once your teammates who have finished come back, you just feel out of place. Like you feel almost unworthy, like imposter syndrome almost. That's really the hardest part because even if, if you finish a race, you're like, oh yeah, that was rubbish, but at least I finished or at least this happened. But when you DNF, it's like, it just, you feel almost like a waste of space is the honesty behind it. How do you process that, deal with it and, you know, enable yourself to come back for, for more? Because that, you know, that's, that's, that's a blow, isn't it? So I get, I guess the, the way of dealing with that is, and learning to deal with that is part, part of learning the job as a whole. Yeah, one of my good friends who's been in the World Tour for a decade um, says you need, to be, you need to learn to be a goldfish as a cyclist. So you need to very, like, which means very quickly forget what happened and move on to the next thing. Because another thing he says is it only takes one day. It only takes one day to make a very mediocre year the best year of your career. So the mixture of the two, being a goldfish, and because if you just, you obviously need to learn from what happened and go over it. But once that's happened and you processed it, forget about it and look forward. And you've got to be optimistic as a cyclist because we lose 99% of the year um, and it only takes that one day. So if you take what you can, then try to forget about it and just look forward. I suppose that's the only way of processing it. And racing in Belgium isn't just terrifying lows there have been good good moments as well so take us through some of those some of the more positive experiences you had it was my first ever european win i won the prologue of um Sturvans v limburg it's this stage race in limburg obviously and i went off really early nobody expected anything from me um or i was expected to do a good ride but nothing special and then early on i was like oh cool i'm in the hot seat but there's no hot seat at junior races so you just go back to your team tent what you've set up hang around and then we went to a cafe for a coffee as you do um and then i was still in the hot seat when i came out and we just every then so we we had the race radio on and it's because they come through in flemish or dutch or whatever then they translate into english and it's like you've beat these you've beat these and we like 10 guys to go it was like nice top 10 like happy days and every single one it was like you tick this off tick this off and then when it was announced that i won firstly i didn't believe it like I never believe I've won until I'm on the podium because you just never know. But um, my Swanya, a big Dutch guy uh, called Tom, put me into his biggest bear hug, still the biggest bear hug I've had in my life. And it was the team's first win that year as well. So it was like my first win in Europe, the team's first win this year. And I, I just remember like with five guys to go, the team all started chanting Joe for yellow. And I was like, boys, calm it, calm it. Um, I haven't won yet. And then when you, obviously when you win the first stage, you go into yellow. Um first European when it's like nice I've announced myself I've made it um obviously there's a there's a long path after that you think as a junior you get ahead of yourself very quickly but I think that doesn't matter what I'll do in the rest of like my career your first European win will always stay with you what are the circuits and races actually like just on a on a, on a technical level because you know, we chatted before before we turned the mics on and talked about your most recent race the Tour of Britain and you, you mentioned that in Brittany, they they or in France in general, they 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 like a finishing circuit. You often do a race and then do several laps of a finishing circuit. And you talked about the punchy punchy climbs and how often the climbs come along. Um, in in Flanders and especially, but in Belgium in general, what what are the circuits like? Um, so it depends on the level of racing you do. So obviously you have commesses, which are basically criteriums, um, which I've actually somehow never done a one day commesse in my life, which is surprising to everyone. 
Um, I've done races which have been on Kermesse circuits. And Kermesse circuits, I don't know, usually around 7 to 15k-ish, longer than a criterium. And they're just around the town centre because that's what it is in Belgium. It's, it's a part of the community. So you're racing past the butcher, the baker, or whatever, bunny hopping the, the central reservations to take the fastest line. And they throw anything in in Belgium. So if there's a narrow cobble climb next to a church, you can guarantee you'll be going up it. If there's this random cobbled sector in front of the town hall, you'll go across it. But the thing is with Belgium is, in juniors especially, it's mostly circuits. When you go to pros, it changes quite a lot. But in the juniors, you notice that everything's like on top of each other. So you have all the people coming out for the day, like the barbecues on. Like there's even at junior level, there's people betting on the race. There's never an easy circuit in Belgium. That can be guaranteed. Even if you look at the road book before and it's like, oh, it's flat, you can guarantee there'll be crosswinds or there's just, it's Belgium. There's always something. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. There's always something to make life hard as a bike racer. Are these races something you see yourself getting really into if, if you go up to the world tour um, or do you, do you think they're a good education but maybe your skills and strengths lie elsewhere? I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm an out-and-out classics rider. In honesty, I, I prefer kind of the Ardennes. Um, it's, a, it's a bit more punchy, a little bit more climbing. Whereas Belgium is, Belgium isn't just racing, it's like a state of mind. You've got to be, I, I don't even know how to describe it. You've always got to be ready for the next, next thing. You've got to know the roads, which is why a lot of guys, a lot of the best guys have lived there. But no, I think in the future, I'm always happy to race them because cause I've grown up doing them I kind of just have this base skill level for them but I'm not one of the guys who looks at the calendar every year and sees the Belgian block and I'm like I have to do that um so I'm happy to do them but then they're not my favorite races in the world let's say what are your best tips for surviving and thriving in the Flandrian races um I suppose it's as, as my opening line of the the piece says it's kind of never give up um and it's same with any cobbled race, Belgium in particular, you never know what's going to happen. Always keep riding, I think, was what Matt Heyman maybe said after winning Paris-Roubaix, which is obviously France, but whatever. Always keep riding. Like, even if you puncture, if you get dropped, you never know what's going to happen. Like, some of my best days have come after some of my worst legs at the start of races. And it's a sort of environment. Always keep riding. You might win. You might not. But you never know if you don't. And any last words of advice for anyone who's thinking of going to try out racing in Belgium just do it why not you'll learn something whether that's bike racing or about yourself um it's like a hard school of racing but it's also like a hard school of of life I suppose um there'll be lots of highs but also lots of lows but that's that's part of the fun of it just go and do it and see what happens thanks very much for joining us on the Rouleau podcast and thanks for having me Ed Pickering talking to Joe Laverick and that's it from this Rouleau conversations there'll be a Rouleau tech podcast along next week
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.